Please open your Bibles to John chapter 10. The artist who wrote that song you just heard is a, she's probably not young anymore. When I, when I saw her, she was a young lady who's blind. And so that line, I'll walk through the darkness if you want me to, is particularly poignant. And I'm guessing why it was selected for now ties in with our text this morning. John chapter 10. And this morning, God willing, we'll, we'll finish this section. Now part eight. And I know it may seem laborious, but I, I do think it's important to view this as a unit. Uh, John frames it as a unit from 9-1 through 10-21. Jesus heals a man. We see how the Pharisees, the religious leaders, the shepherds of Israel treat him. It's horrendous. They abuse him. They accuse him. They slander him. They revile him. They cast him out. The good shepherd finds this lost sheep. He tends to him. And the good shepherd fights the false shepherds. He tears into them. That is done with. The other shepherds, the hirelings, the strangers, the thieves, the robbers, they drop out of our text this morning. And in the final section of what some call the good shepherd discourse, Jesus simply reveals himself to those who have ears to hear and eyes to see. Jesus speaks plainly about who he is. He is the good shepherd. And he tells us why that is good news. Or as I've titled it, the goodness of the good shepherd. So I'd like to begin by reading John 10, 14 to 21. Of word of prayer and we'll dive in. I am the good shepherd. I know my own, my own know me. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also. And they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason, the Father loves me, because I laid down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. There was again a division among the Jews because of these words. Many of them said, he has a demon and is insane. Why listen to him? Others said, these are not the words of one who is oppressed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? Let's pray. Lord God, we would hear your voice in this passage. We would see your glory. Lord, we know that is a work not the, that the flesh cannot accomplish. We must be born by your Spirit. You must remove the veil. You must speak light and life into our darkened hearts. We ask that you would do this thing. We, we take comfort in knowing the promise that if we knew who it was to whom we were speaking in the gift of God, you would ask and you would give rivers of living water. So we pray for your Spirit Help us to hear, to gift us to see, and that we would not be hearers only, deceiving ourselves, but effectual doers of your word. So show us your son in his glory, in his goodness. Let us be comforted by that. Let us be satisfied by that. In Jesus' name, amen. The goodness of the good shepherd. So this discourse, chapter 10, verses 1 to 18, where Jesus speaks 
Um, it can be broken into three sections. In the first five verses, he speaks in the third person, and it's a contrast between the shepherd of the sheep and the hireling, not the hirelings, the, the thieves and the robbers. And we saw that the, the shepherd is recognized and authorized, and the, the, the thieves and the robbers climb over the wall. They're, they're illegitimate. And we see that the, the shepherd of the sheep knows his sheep, and he calls them by name, and they know him. There's a, there's a relationship between the two that is not present with the stranger. So by contrast, Jesus is legitimate and authorized. The Pharisees are illegitimate, unauthorized. Jesus knows his flock. They know him. The, the Pharisees do not know their flock, and the flock does not know their voice, and it flees and runs from them. Then in the, in the second section we looked at last week, Jesus shifts the metaphor. He's the door. He is the one actually who grants entrance. He is the one who authorizes. Rather than the Pharisees, who throughout John's gospel have been viewing themselves as the gatekeepers, themselves as the one approving or disapproving, auditing, sending people to question John the Baptist, who and what are you doing, sending Nicodemus to question Jesus. Rather, it's Jesus who approves. It's Jesus who recognizes. Any legitimate shepherds enter through Christ, and the Pharisees are not legitimate shepherds. They don't recognize Jesus. And then Jesus is the door for the sheep. There is no entering into the the flock of God. There is no entering into that relationship apart from entering through Jesus. And we learn that those who enter through him will be let out and brought in. They'll have food, shelter, provision. Well, now the contrasts drop out. There's no more talk of hirelings. There's no more talk of thieves and robbers. Rather, it's Jesus. And now a third party is added. There's, There's the shepherd and there's the sheep and there's the father. And Jesus' discussion centers around that. We're going to look at this in four points, the goodness of the good shepherd, what makes the shepherd so good. And the first point is this, the good shepherd knows his own. The good shepherd knows his own. I am the good shepherd. I know my own. My own know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. I just got to pause. This is the second time Jesus is claiming this title. I am the good shepherd. He says it again back in verse 9. No, I am the door. Sorry, verse 11. Pardon me. And I won't do more than remind you that that is a claim to Old Testament passages. I've referenced them here. Ezekiel 34, Zechariah 11. When Jesus claims not just to be a good shepherd, but the good shepherd, he is claiming a messianic title. He's possibly, depending on how you read Ezekiel 34, claiming to be God himself. Because in Ezekiel 34, the Lord emphatically states, I, I myself will shepherd my flock. So he's making a claim. Jesus is the good shepherd. Uh, I'll pass over that because we looked at that in the last two weeks, but don't, don't miss that again. This is a huge claim to authority, huge claim to identity. And we see that there is a mutual knowledge between shepherd and sheep, a mutual knowledge between shepherd and sheep. I know my own my own know me. Now, this is a reputation from repetition from the first things Jesus said. Look at down at verse 3 of chapter 10. To him the gatekeeper opens, the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. And so one of the excellencies of our Savior is he knows us and those of us who are his sheep know him. And whereas perhaps before, 
the knowing might seem shallow, although even in the mass passage, it can't be. He, is, he knows them by name, they hear his voice, they perk up. Here, Jesus is emphasizing just how deep and how rich that knowing is, how mutual it is, how intimate it is. Because remember, biblically, knowing someone can mean knowing of someone, but in, in Genesis 3, it can also say, you know, 4, Adam knew his wife and she conceived. So knowing and knowing someone can speak actually of deep intimacy. How intimate? What does Jesus have in mind here? Well, he gives us a mode of comparison. Point one, though, first, this knowledge is experiential. This knowledge is experiential. Uh, Maybe the best way to contrast this is Jesus is not saying his sheep know about him. They know of him. Rather, they know him. And the reason it's experiential is they know his voice. They hear a sound, and and they respond to that voice. This is a knowledge that, that... is, is visceral. It, in, the, in the imagery, the picture is of a sheep, and the shepherd calls the sheep, and the sheep perks up. They know the name, and then they follow them. The knowledge that Jesus gives his sheep, and they have of him, and he has of them, is personal. It is intimate. It's relational. It is experiential. It is possible to know things about Jesus. It's possible to recite creeds. It's possible to pass tests on systematic theology and yet not know him or be known by him. Think of those terrible words in Matthew 7. Many on that day will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not do all these things in your name? And I will say, depart from me. I never knew you. And the omniscient Christ is not claiming to have some deficiency in his knowledge of facts. Rather, there is no relationship. I never knew you. You never knew me. This is experiential. They know and follow his voice. And that's been emphasized. It wouldn't do for a sheep. He calls his sheep. The sheep stays put. Here's the the picture. He goes to the fold. He calls his sheep. His sheep hear his voice. They follow. And one of his sheep says, I I heard his voice. I'm his sheep. But you didn't go. Oh, I just, I recognized his voice, but I didn't choose to go. No. The, The knowledge makes them move, makes them act. Look at chapter 10, verse, um, right there, verse 27. My sheep hear my voice, I know them, and they follow me. This is the defining characteristic of the sheep in this passage. A knowledge and a recognition of the voice and a following. How do you separate the good shepherd's sheep from the other sheep? They hear his voice, they follow him. That's how. That's how you identify the sheep. How do you identify a Christian? There are those who hear Christ's voice in his word and follow him. It's pretty, pretty straightforward and simple, which means it won't do to know things about Jesus. All the way back in Jeremiah 9, the Lord says this, Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts, boasts in this, that he understands and knows me. That I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. Or Paul in Philippians 3, you know know the passage, he lists up all of his accomplishments, all of his birthrights. Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, 
but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him, says Paul, who knows him. And clearly in this context, I want to know him more, better. I want a deeper relationship with him. So not only does he say the knowledge I have of him is more valuable, more precious to me than any earthly possession I have, my one consuming desire I have is to know him more. The power of his resurrection, that I may share in his sufferings, become liking him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection of the dead. Or turn to John 17. How, how important is it to know Jesus in this sense? This is Jesus' high priestly prayer. He's in the garden. He prays first for himself, then he prays for his disciples, then he prays for us. And Jesus had spoken these words. He lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. In this passage, what's the definition of eternal life? Eternal life is knowing God and Jesus. What is so great and good about the good shepherd? He knows his sheep and they know him. In the context of John's gospel, this is intimate and experiential, but not just experiential. Jesus gives us a a comparison that is stunning. To what degree, how well, Do the sheep know the shepherd and the shepherd know the sheep? Now, here's where the metaphor breaks down. The shepherd may know the customs of the sheep when they're hungry, when they're not, where they like to graze. But surely the shepherd doesn't know things um, that extend much beyond that. And surely the sheep don't know much about the shepherd. They know his voice, they know where he leads, but they don't know what his favorite food is. They don't necessarily know where he lives, what type of music he likes. Their knowledge is going to be limited Jesus doesn't limit the knowledge here. What, what, to what can we compare our knowledge of Jesus and his knowledge of us? Because it, it goes both ways, and in the metaphor, it goes, in the analogy, it goes both ways. I know my own, I own know me. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father. That's jaw-dropping. How well does the Father know Jesus? How well does Jesus know the Father? T- turn back to John 5. Jesus has already spoken about this. John chapter 5, verse 20. The Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. When we studied this, we, we understood that what Jesus is saying is the way the Father demonstrates his love to the Son, or a way the Father demonstrates his love to the Son, is a full and complete self-disclosure. The imagery here being of a, a father teaching his son the family trade or craft. And, and so the Father creates the universe. He, the Son watches, and he, he sees all that his Father is doing. And the Father judges. He gives the Son to judge. If you read through this passage, that's the, that's the, the imagery that's being brought forth. So the Son uniquely has full, unfettered, complete access to everything the Father is and does. That's the Father's demonstration of love to the Son. The Son's demonstration of love to the Father is he imitates and does exactly what he sees. 
That's the language of John 5. Keep reading. The father loves the son and shows him all himself he is doing, and greater works than these he will show him, so that you may marvel, for as the father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the son gives life to whom he will. For the father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the son, that all may honor the son just as they honor the father. Whoever does not honor the son does not honor the father who sent him. And he goes on. This is rich intimacy. And Jesus says, just as that, so the sheep know him and he knows his sheep. That is astounding. Now, it may, it may be less astounding that Jesus intimately knows you and me. He fashioned you. He knit you together in your mother's womb. He upholds you by the power of his word. He is infinite in his knowledge. He knows everything about you. You can read Psalm 139 where David marvels at God's knowledge of him before a word came out of my mouth. You knew every one of them. Every day of my life was written in your book before I lived but one of them. That's marvelous in and of itself. But the reciprocal portion is this. You and I have the ability to know Jesus, let me put it this way, as well as you would like. There is no ceiling to how well you can know Jesus. Paul knows him counts his knowledge of him as more valuable than any earthly possession, and then says, but I want to know him more. If truly the knowledge of the sheep and the shepherd is as the father knows the son and the son knows the father, then I would suggest to you there is no ceiling to how well you can know the good shepherd in this life. There's nothing stopping you other than your own desire, other than your own um, affections. This is... Truly good news. We, we don't have a God who is far removed and out there in space. God is transcendent, but he's also imminent, and he's here, and he, he leads his flock in and out. And you can't get around these words. The good shepherd knows his own, and they know me, just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father. That is good, good news. It's intimate, just as between the Father and the Son. Third, it is costly. It is costly. And I lay down my life for the sheep. Now, the first statement of I'm the good shepherd centered around that. Last week, we looked at what makes a good shepherd good. Verse 11, I'm the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And the contrast was with hired hands who, when they see danger coming, abandon the flock and let the flock get ravaged. Here, it seems to connect his knowledge of the sheep with his death. And we can make sense of that surely this side of the cross. How is it possible that you and I can have this relationship and knowledge of Christ and him of us? How is it possible that our sins don't consume us, drag us down to hell with them? Because the good shepherd lays down his life for the flock. This relationship, this knowledge is made possible by his death. So the first point to consider, and consider this especially when the things of this life seem dear and precious to you. And there are many good things in this life. I'm not suggesting there aren't. You know God, and you're known by God. At least hopefully you do, and hopefully you are. And that is more precious, more valuable, more satisfying, and more important than anything else you can have or know. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. But let he who boasts, boasts in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord, 
who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. Okay. Point number one, the good shepherd knows his own. Point number two, the good shepherd gathers his flock. The good shepherd gathers his flock. Jesus says in verse 16, I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. And this is a truly marvelous theme. It's in John's gospel. It's, it's, it's not in many places, but it's in enough that it's clearly there. And that is this. As much as the shepherd comes to the sheepfold, and in this context, the sheepfold and the sheep have, must be primarily Israel, the lost sheep of Israel. Here and in a few other places, it becomes clear that Jesus has beyond his vision, not just Israel, but the Gentiles as well. We got our first hints of this with the Samaritans. Or even back with John the Baptist, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Here it becomes explicit. It'll become even more explicit later on in John's gospel. I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also. If if you're here today and you're a Gentile, this is really good news. Really good news. And And I pause and just marvel that in Jesus' earthly ministry, face-to-face with Israelites and the Jews, he is thinking not just of them, but of the goyim, of us as well, the nations, the peoples. In John 17, in his high priestly prayer, we'll see, he prays not just for Israel, he prays for us. Here we are. We're part of that other sheep. So, quickly... Jesus has sheep outside of Judaism. Jesus has sheep outside of Judaism. Now, in John 4, the encounter with the woman at the well, the Samaritan, Jesus makes it clear salvation is indeed from the Jews. You remember she asked him, what mountain should we pray on? Jesus said, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem we worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. So, we have a Jewish Savior We have a Jewish book and scriptures and prophets, Jewish promises. We get grafted into that olive branch, to use Paul's analogy. Salvation is from the Jews, but it extends well beyond them. So the Samaritans can say a little later in John 4, they said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe. For we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. So salvation is from the Jews, but as John's gospel makes clear, Jesus is the Savior of the world. Turn turn to John 11, where this theme gets highlighted again. John 11, after he raises... Lazarus from the dead, there's a, there's a conclave with the, with the Pharisees and the chief priests. We read in verse 47, so the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, what are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. We get to see what their motivation really is. They like the status quo. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it's better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation and not for the nation only, 
but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So John adds that common term that the high priest says, and that's a very similar concept to what Jesus says here. I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also. He died, according to John here, not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So Jesus is the Savior of the world. So then, given that fact that Jesus says, I have more sheep than are just here in Israel, he then speaks about an, an impetus, a necessary thing he must do. This is partly because he's been commissioned and charged by his Father. And Jesus must shepherd them also. Jesus must shepherd them also. I must bring them also. They will listen to my voice. So Jesus is here promising, prophesying, predicting something he will do. He will gather his sheep from outside the fold. Understand that if you're a Christian here this morning, that this is the fulfillment of what Jesus said. You are an answer to this promise. Jesus says other sheep from his not of this fold to gather, we are those he's gathered. There are others, we're not all of them, but, but here we are. <laughs> I have sheep that are not of this fold, I must bring them all, so they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock and one shepherd. He will call his own by name, just as he said in verse 3 of chapter 10. They will recognize his voice and follow him. They'll recognize his voice and follow him. And, and there could be a whole message about the, the implications of, of salvation and um, election and predestination here. But just notice one thing. No one in this passage is becoming a sheep by hearing his voice. That's not the logic of the passage. The logic of the passage is my sheep are out there and they're going to be identified. They're going to identify themselves when they hear my voice. The whole logic is he shows up to a pen of mixed sheep and he gives the call and he calls the name. And those that are his, not those that become his, but those who are his perk up and follow. That's the same thing here. You didn't become Jesus' sheep by hearing his voice. You proved you were his sheep when you heard his voice. That's the logic of this text. Don't miss that. I have other sheep and I must bring them also. They will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. He will call his own by name. They will recognize his voice and follow him. And here we are 2,000 years later. I'm guessing for most of you, someone preached the gospel to you. I don't know how, whether it's someone preaching or you're reading, the, reading scripture, and you heard Jesus' voice in these words. You heard the voice of God in his word, and you responded in faith, and you followed him, and you showed um, you were his sheep. Praise God. Praise God. Jesus intends, point C, for all of his sheep to be united. Jesus intends for all of his sheep to be united. I understand that we need to have churches sometimes for language blocks, and so there can be a, a Korean church or there can be um, an Asian church or whatever. But Jesus intends for his church to be united. We shouldn't be breaking ethnically purely because we're more comfortable that way. Messianic Jewish congregations. No, Jesus wants one flock. Ephesians chapter 4, he's made one new man. T turn to John 17 again. In John 17, where he prays for us, and he prays for this. It, our diversity is our strength. 
The body is stronger because it's not all toes. It's not all fingers. It's not all eyes. The body is stronger because of the variety within it. And in John chapter 17, Jesus' first five verses prays for himself. Then in verses 6 to 19, he prays for his disciples. Then look at verse 20. And again, on the night he was to be betrayed, the night hours before the cross, we are on his mind. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. Oh, look, there we are again. That's us. He's praying for us. What's he praying? That they may be one. To what degree, Jesus? How much oneness? Just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given to me, I have given to them that they may be one even as we are one. To what degree is Jesus praying that we would be unified? The model's the Trinity, which means we haven't reached it yet. Never be satisfied with the unity we have. Strive for greater unity. Answer Jesus' prayer. I and them, you and me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory. You have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. So Jesus has in mind more sheep outside of Israel and he must gather them. He does that through his apostles. He does that through his church and he does that ultimately through the preached gospel of his word. And his desire is that even though there are many and in many places that they would be one flock, there is one body, one universal church. That is true, even as we gather in many local churches. There's one shepherd, one flock. Oh, we got time. Go, go to Ephesians. Go to Ephesians 4. You remember in our study of Ephesians, the first three chapters mostly containing what is truth, doctrinal statements, indicative verbs. And then starting in chapter four, the imperatives start to dominate. So a way to think of it is here's what is true and here's how to live in light of what is true. And he begins the, the practical exhortation, the application of Ephesians with this exhortation, verse one of chapter four of Ephesians. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a worthy manner of your calling to which you've been called. And he goes on to describe what a worthy walk looks like. This is Paul's opening exhortation. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace, there is one body, and one spirit, just as you were called in one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father over all who is over all and through all and in all. 
His opening charge is maintain the unity because we have one Lord, one profession of faith, one baptism, one spirit, one hope, one faith. Back to John 10. Jesus is predicting the inclusion of the Gentiles. He is speaking of his commitment not just to save those who are in front of him, but to gather his entire sheepfold of flock given to him by the Father. But that is not the end. It's a means to the end. And the next step is that the the flock be unified. The flock be unified. We've got to move on your blanks. Jew and Gentile are one in Christ. And the one flock has one shepherd. The one flock has one shepherd. Okay, moving on to point three, verses 17 and 18. What's so good about the good shepherd? He knows his own, his own know him. What's so good about the good shepherd? He's committed to gathering his flock. That's why you're a Christian today. Because Jesus is committed to getting all of his sheep, not just some of them. What also is good about the good shepherd? The good shepherd surrenders his life. The good shepherd surrenders his life. Verses 17 and 18. For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life, that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. For this reason, the Father loves me, which is another remarkable claim. We celebrate, and rightly so, that God's love for us is in some senses unconditional. If you were to answer the question, why does God love you? The answer better not be because I If I were to ask you, why why does God love you? And if your answer starts, because I, I am certain you're on the wrong path. There is nothing good in you, naturally. Listen to Deuteronomy's answer. It was not because, Deuteronomy 7, 7, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. It's not because he saw your limitless potential It's not because he saw your innate goodness. There was nothing to see if that were the case. Rather, for you were the littlest of all peoples, Deuteronomy 7, 8, but it's because the Lord loves you. Why does God love you? Because he loves you. God's love of us is a demonstration of his greatness and glory. It's his nature to love. And his love makes us lovely. He's not content to leave us unlovely. He will make us lovely. And all of that's true. You will be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. But God does not love you because of something in you. His love's not responding to some valuable thing in you. Rather, in spite of who we are, he loves us. That's, that's That's what we sing praises for. Someone would hardly die for his friends, but God shows his love for us and that while we were yet enemies, Christ died for us. The whole, the whole logic is he ought to be angry. He ought to cast us into hell. What is right and good of God to do is to, to damn us. Rather, he sends his son to die for us. What love is this? That's, that, you've got to understand the cross that way. Or you're going to turn the cross into self-validation. And I've heard this as well. How valuable are you? You're so valuable that God sent his son to die for you. Do not turn the cross into self-esteem as if somehow God got a good deal, bargain in trading his son for you and me. Rather, this is the glory of God that he loved us. But then you say, okay, why does the father love the son? And now we're tempted to say the same thing, except that's the wrong answer. The father has a reason for loving the son. So God's love for us 
is in spite of who we are. God's love for the Son is because of who he is. It's causal. Jesus says, for this reason, the Father loves me. So if we say, why does the Father love the Son? Biblically, the answer here is because the Son lays down his life. In other words, the Son is lovely. It makes, it's not surprising the Father loves the Son. The Son is lovely. And so here, the Father's love for the Son is not unconditional in that sense. It's, it's responding to something lovely in the Son. And it's not the, as though the Father wouldn't love the Son if the Son didn't lay down his life, but rather, the Father who knows the Son and the Son who knows the Father, the Father who has access into the full character of the Son, knows this is an obedient Son. This is a Son who will give of himself for his Father's will. This is a Son who, Philippians 2, 15, 2, 2 5 to 11, this hymn, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus... Every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And Jesus says here, that is why the Father loves him. I'm not convinced that's an exhaustive list of why the Father loves him. But the Father loves the Son precisely because the Son is lovely. The Father loves us because he loves us. So Jesus says, this is why my Father loves me because he is an obedient son, because he's a submissive son, because he's a son willing to give of himself and suffer for his father's will and the good of his people. Which is to say, all the reasons we love Jesus, the father loves Jesus as well. This is why the father loves me. Then he says, Jesus gives his life so that he can rise again. And here is one of the few clear marks in John's gospel of Jesus speaking of the resurrection. We have spoken of the son being lifted up the serpent on the pole that Moses had, the Lamb of God, and we know in, in Israel, lambs take away sin by dying. There might be some veiled references to the resurrection, but here it becomes clear Jesus expects to rise again. And he, and he speaks, I think, most plainly in John's gospel up to this point here. Jesus isn't giving up of himself simply for a beautiful picture, to be a martyr to a cause, as a grand demonstration and, and in some more liberal churches, that's, that's how you understand the cross. Jesus died just to show us his love, just to show us suffering, just to show his solidarity, as if that were an end to itself. The death of Jesus on the cross is not an end in of itself. Jesus says plainly, I lay down my life that I may take it up again. Jesus dies so that he might rise glorified, so that he might rise his people's sin atoned for. That's why he dies. And so Jesus is not viewing his death as the end. So Jesus gives his life so that he can rise again. Point C, Jesus' death is entirely voluntary. Jesus' death is entirely voluntary. Notice the emphasis of what he says. No one takes it from me. Well, in one sense, yeah, they did. They, they nailed you to a cross, Jesus, where they're going to. 
The Romans are going to take your life from him. And, and, in, and in a practical sense, if you, if you were there with a camera, it sure looked that way. But what he's making a claim is a bigger claim. This is happening because I chose it to happen. This is happening because I ordained it this way. This is the plan. And in that sense, no one is acting upon me. No one is forcing my hand. Rather, I lay it down on my own accord. A, a bold claim to sovereignty. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. Jesus' death is entirely voluntary. This, this is the plan. The crucifixion was not plan B. The crucifixion was plan A. John 12, 27. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. And, and from the beginning of John's gospel, John the Baptist, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. I, I know you know this, but Jesus came to die. The cross is the point. And then the resurrection after the cross is also further the point because he came to lay down his life that he might rise it up again. Point D, Jesus acts in obedience to his Father's charge. Jesus acts in obedience to his Father's charge. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. And again, not only does his Father love him, but we learn that not only does his Father love him because he lays down his life, but he lays down his life in accordance with the charge. His Father has charged him with something. I have work for you to do, son. We'll see in John 17. That's how Jesus frames it. His Father has given him a task to do, and the Son joyfully accepts it and does it perfectly. This is why the Father loves the Son. Go to John 17. We'll get here in a year or so. Verse 4, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. The Father charged the Son with some work to do, including dying on a cross. And on the night before he was to be crucified, the Son can say, I've accomplished your work. Take me back home when this is done. Bring me back to the glory I had with you. Jesus acts in obedience. And again, this, this is another huge theme in John's gospel. The son didn't come up with this plan. He's not some maverick, some innovator. Rather, he's perfectly obedient. He does nothing but what he sees his father do. He says nothing but what his father gives him to say. He judges only as his father judges. And so even here, his laying down of his life and his taking it back up. He has authority because, to use the imagery he said previously, to him the gatekeeper opens. Jesus is an authorized agent. He's an empowered agent. The Father has sent him. The Father has given him this task. He will complete it. He's, he's not operating independently. But Jesus acts in obedience to his Father's charge. Unlike those who climb over the wall he knows his sheep, they know him, the gatekeeper knows him, and the door opens to him. He's authorized. He's charged to do this. This is the plan. This is the plan. So, so much here. We could easily spend more time here, but we've got to look quickly at the response. So the good shepherd surrenders his life. Next, the good shepherd divides men. The good shepherd divides men. So 
before we look at this, what is the defining characteristic of Jesus' sheep in this section? How are Jesus' sheep identified from other sheep? They hear his voice. The response of those who heard this, we know this is outdoors and in public because it starts with him talking to the man born blind. Some Pharisees are nearby, they overhear, they ask him, hey, are you talking about us? He says, yes. So presumably we're in a public place. We now get the public response to all this. What do we see? There was again a division among the Jews because of these words. Many of them said, he has a demon and is insane. Why listen to him? Others said, these are not the one words of one who is oppressed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? The defining quality of Jesus' sheep is they hear his voice. And what do we see here? Some men hearing his voice and hating it, thinking it sounds like the ravings of a demon-possessed lunatic. And others, if I'm not mistaken, are showing the first signs of hearing something different. And so even as he predicted, the good shepherd is even here dividing men, separating out his flock. Many, John says, would not listen to him. Notice again, everything centers around his words, his voice. Everything centers around his words and his voice. There was again division among the Jews because of these words. Many of them said he's a demon and is insane. Why listen to him? And again, what John has most notably in chapter 6, shown us, framed us, that Jesus is the prophet like Moses. In John 6, like Moses, he feeds the people manna in the wilderness, and they get it. John 6, 14, they said, this is indeed the prophet who's to come into the world. What prophet? The Deuteronomy 18 prophet like Moses. What are you supposed to do when God raises up the prophet like Moses? What's your one responsibility? How should you respond? You're to listen to him. What do these people say? Well, I listen to him. John is making it clear what camp they fall into. They don't hear Jesus' words and think, that, 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 that might be the prophet like Moses. They're not his sheep. They don't hear his voice, clearly. They're back to the same slander that was active in John chapter 8, where they said to him, are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? It's tragic. That's one way of responding. Jesus demands a response. You don't sit on the fence ambivalently. So there's many who think this is the words of a madman. However, there are some, in contrast to the many, there are some found his words and deeds compelling. Now, I'm not saying all of these some will prove to be a sheep, but thankfully they have at least a different response, and perhaps they may be in the, in the very act of demonstrating they are, in fact, his sheep, of responding to his words and his voice. After all, next it is 4.11. The Lord makes it clear. Who has made man's mouth? Who has made him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Opening the eyes of the blind, that's something only God can do. God takes credit for that. Demon, demons can't do that. But more importantly, th- these words... They hear something in his words. These aren't the words of a lunatic. Now, they're not sure what the words are yet. They're not all the way there yet. But praise God, they're not thinking these are the words of a lunatic. But by framing it this way, and by not bringing it to clear closure, John is framing the question for us, right? So we we know of this division. And in case you're wondering, well, then what happened next, John? How did they land? We just move on in verse 22 at that time. He said, we're going to jump ahead a couple months. And so the resolution is left hanging, which invites us into that. The question for you and I here is this. 
as Jesus speaks of having other sheep to gather, what do you hear with these words? They sound like the words of a lunatic to you? Or do these sound like the words of life? Do you evidence you're his sheep by perking up and hearing his voice in his words, following him? Or do these words bore you? That's, that's what John is inviting us to. Jesus has referenced, I have other sheep. We're, we're other sheep, <laughs> not of this fold. And as you've heard God's word this morning, hopefully you've heard his voice. Now the way it proves you're his sheep is you follow him. You enter through the gate. And so I, I've seen a bunch of new people here this morning, so I wouldn't want to assume anything. Jesus makes it clear here and elsewhere, we enter through him by turning to him in faith by turning and trusting in his life, his death on the cross, receiving him by faith, turning from your sins, turning from your gods, turning from your idols, and trusting in him, hearing his voice, and following him. That's a Christian. And for those of us who hear his voice, we marvel at his love. I'm going to call the worship team up. We have a closing word of prayer, and we will sing our closing song as we marvel at the love of the good shepherd. A shepherd who knows us, a shepherd who died for us. Lord God, we, we thank you for sending your son. We thank you for, for sending a sacrifice for sin. We thank you for showing your love and not withholding from us your son. And we thank you for his love shown that he would die on our behalf. What shepherd dies for his sheep? The good shepherd does. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.